This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, I know, I know, I know, I know. We have not done Q&A in a very, very long time. This is actually, I think, the longest that we've gone on this podcast without getting to your questions. And it's because there's been so much good stuff out there to talk about. Not that the stuff we're going to be talking about today isn't important, but for those of you getting mad out there, you just need to slow your roll, chill out, because you know your boy loves you and he's here for you. So today we're going to go ahead and get launched in. So Q&A volume eight, let's do it. First question. What do you think about the New Zealand prime minister moving to immediately ban assault rifles after the two recent mosque attacks? Okay. So for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, that would be those of you listening to this that also live under a rock. Go back to episode 67 of this podcast. So just a couple episodes ago, it's Kia Kaha. And so that kind of goes into the details of what we saw uh, in that attack where there was a white supremacist that went into two mosques on the same day and uh, tried to take out as many uh, Muslims as they could, ended up killing 50 people as of right now. So terrible situation. Well, less than a week after that shooting, the prime minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, she basically came out and she said that they were going to enact a law immediately that would ban all semi-automatic firearms that are capable of using detachable magazines or that could hold more than five rounds of ammunition. So basically you would think, you know, AK-47s and uh, AR-15s, AR-10s, like things like that were, were going to be banned outright. So she didn't give a whole lot of detail on if it would be a confiscation or a buyback, a government buyback, which is essentially a government confiscation. Um, But we can assume that a lot of those things are in there and there have been a little bit more information. But there was a quote towards the end of this press conference uh, where Ardern said this, quote, but be assured this is just the beginning of the work we need to do, unquote. So. Obviously, as you can imagine, uh, the lefties on Twitter and all these people, anti-gun people in America, anti-NRA people, uh, they've just praised her as a hero, right? So let's look in this, this brave woman that, you know, sees something that went wrong in her country and then immediately took actions to get on the other side of it so that it would never, ever happen again. Well, here's the only problem is this proposal that is being put out there is pretty stupid, Overall, and it's stupid for for a couple of reasons. And I, in in no way, guys, let me just kind of preface this by saying this isn't in any way meant to be insensitive to the families of those that passed away, right? So to the loved ones of the fifty people that are deceased and the dozens more that were injured and uh, and some of them severely injured in this attack, this isn't meant in any way to be insensitive to them. So take that, uh, take all this with a grain of salt if that's where you were going. But for the most part, New Zealand does not have a gun crime problem. I mean, they just don't. So just to kind of throw some statistics out here to you so you can kind of get an idea, there are approximately 1.2 million guns in country right now in New Zealand, okay? So that is about 200,000 registered gun owners, and those are essentially the guns that we know about, okay? But the murder rate in New Zealand, this is a crazy, crazy stat. The murder rate in New Zealand for 2018 was 35. So in the entirety of 2018, 35 people were murdered. There's almost 5 million people that live in New Zealand. I mean, just think about that. Haven't there been weekends in Chicago where, you know, more than 35 people were killed? So basically that's seven people were murdered for every million people that are in that country. So, so that's not, that's not a big number at all. That is an unbelievably safe country. But here's the other thing, because you might be like, well, what about guns? Most of those murders, most of those 35 murders were not with a gun. They were with presumably other weapons that weren't firearms, okay? 
So just a, a point of comparison for you. So I grew up and I'm, I'm from a town called Lawton, Oklahoma. Lawton. So Southwest Oklahoma, it's known to be one of the most dangerous uh, cities in the United States. It's probably the most dangerous city that you've never heard of. Lots of crime, lots of violent crime, lots of rape, those different things. In 2018, there were eight murders in my hometown of Lawton. Okay. The population of Lawton is under 100,000. So with a, a country of 5 million people, there were 35 murders. And in my old hometown, there was about a quarter of those in a city of a population under a hundred thousand. So, so when people say that, that this would somehow take care of the problem, it's like, well, what, what problem are you addressing? Right. And I've seen this stat kind of uh, trotted out there where basically when Australia did this, they haven't had a mass shooting there since. Well, Australia was, wasn't having mass shootings really to begin with. They were having a handful of them every decade. And so if you go from a handful to zero of those in a decade, statistically, it's not a terribly significant thing. Now, again, for the individual lives that have been affected by that, it's, in, it's immensely significant. But statistically speaking alone, it is not. Uh, but another reason is just because um, there, there's no statistical indication that banning those guns would, would actually make them rarer in New Zealand, right? So that's kind of the overall point I'm trying to make is that if we were to ban all those guns, if we were to confiscate all those guns, there's nothing statistically that would show us that that would actually become a more rare event. Like this was a one-off of one-offs really like internationally. So just assuming that that was going to take care of the problem would be silly. And the other thing is, is if those guns had been banned outright to begin with, then it wouldn't solve the issue at all. Like you hear this a lot and some people think it's kind of trite, but those laws being enacted before this wouldn't have stopped this. I mean, you, you could presume that it would might make these guns more difficult to attain, but let's not pretend that people that break the law follow the law. That kind of is what make them makes them criminals, right? That's kind of the thing that, that we can't really fully comprehend why someone would do this. Well, you're thinking like you you don't have the capability of thinking like a criminal like that because for us as law-abiding citizens, then we look at a law and we're like, yeah, we should generally follow that. But th those aren't these people. And that kind of gets me into my next point is, well, a law like this would just punish law-abiding citizens for the, for the evils of a statistical outlier, which is exactly what this guy was that, that performed these murders. Because uh, here's the other thing that people aren't really talking about. You, you get very few people in the United States certainly talking about that, but the slaughter that this man was performing now at the second mosque was stopped by a law abiding citizen that had a gun. There was a law abiding Kiwi that was there before the police were. So we, we don't know what would have happened if that guy hadn't shown up. The guy may have literally killed as many as he killed, or he may have killed twice as many as that. What if he had gone to a third or fourth or fifth mosque? Cause I, I pointed that out whenever I talked about it on the, on episode 67, <clears throat> but Basically, you would be taking guns out of the hands of people like that, that would be willing to take the gun off their hip or go to their car or go to their house and get their gun to stop something like this. Again, before the police get there, everyone just thinks the police, they're like magic. Like they just, oh, they just show up and the problem automatically disappears. Like think about the reaction time and response time of most police in the United States. And that doesn't mean they're bad at their job, right? All the time. But the thing is, is they're just not everywhere at all times. And so the, the, the final thing here is just, it's a proposal that's based on emotion, which is in general, not a great idea because where was the emotion before this? Because there was always the potential of something like this to happen. What if the guy's pipe bombs had gone off? Could, could hundreds of people have been killed? We don't know. We don't really know the, the power of the weapons that he was using other than the firearms that he was using. 
But again, it's people that are trying to legislate evil. But evil will always find a way. Again, there are, there are t- attacks in, in countries like China where they literally don't have any guns, where people are literally going around with machetes, killing people, right? And so I'm not here to rank whether I'd like to die by a bullet or die by a machete wound. But at the same time, like you, you can't just legislate evil into non-existence. So she's being lauded as a hero. There's a lot of people that agree with her, but there are a lot of Kiwis right now in New Zealand that are very, very nervous about their guns because they don't want to give them up. So there's kind of my sort of longest uh, response to that question. So that would be my response to what's going on right now in New Zealand. All right. Next question. Should Christians meditate? Um, So here's the thing with the question of should Christians meditate? I feel like there's another key question uh, that should come up right after that one, which is what kind of meditation? I feel like that's the most basic of basics. I'm not, not trying to be reductionist with this, but there, there is something in culture right now where meditation is, is going up in popularity. Guys, if you listen to the Joe Rogan podcast, he talks about how he meditates and he has other guys that come on that are friends of his and, oh, we meditate and we do those different things. It's part of this whole mindfulness movement. Uh, and kind of the roots of that are in Eastern kind of new age religions or pagan religions. Right. Um, and these are just ways I feel like for atheists to pray without claiming anything, right. Without claiming that there's some sort of a deity that's watching them that has judgment and sway and power over their lives. Um, and here's the thing with these Eastern religions and, and I am kind of just lumping this all together. They use meditation to kind of empty the mind. Like that's a whole big thing about that is, oh, we're just going to empty our minds. We're just going to meditate. We're going to hook our ponytails to this tree. And then we're just going to kind of figure it out as we go. Um, So obviously if you're doing that type of meditation, I I think that's an issue, right? If you're just trying to empty your mind and you're trying to make it sort of this Eastern new age type of thing, I obviously think there are massive issues for that if you call yourself a Christian. But then kind of the second key question that that begs is what are you meditating on, right? Because the on part is very important because again, Eastern, they, they want you to just clear your mind of all things, right? But I, I think we can find a lot of scriptural bases for why it's a really, really good idea to meditate, right? And so even just doing a cursory glance through Google and looking at some different resources, I got four scriptures for you right here that would kind of give you a sense of what my answer is going to be. So the first one is Joshua 1.8. So here's Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. So you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it for when you, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Second is Psalm one verses one through two. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and his law and on his law, he meditates day and night. How about Psalm 119, 11? I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And then Psalm 119, verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. So obviously, if you're meditating on scripture, on on the revealed word of God, on the greatness of God, on the sacrifice of Jesus, if, if you are literally quieting yourself, quieting the world around you and your mind enough to where you can focus on those things, absolutely. I mean, obviously, as kind of what I've seen there, and again, that was just a cursory glance through the Bible. There are some dictates that say this is something that you should absolutely do. Like this is an actual good idea. So to kind of break this up into two areas, if you are kind of doing the Eastern clear your mind, new age thing, and you also claim to be a Christian, there's not really such a thing as that type of meditation. That doesn't really work for you if you're a Christian. However, if you're getting quiet, if you're going out in the woods, you're going to a quiet place, you know, closing the door in your closet and you're meditating on his word and his goodness, then I think we're okay. 
Next question. What do you think about all of the offseason moves in Major League Baseball? So here, guys, here's the deal. The amount of money that has been spent this offseason on baseball players is astounding. And, and mainly guys that aren't even close to the age of 30, right? So I just want to give you a rundown of some of the, the some of the contracts that have gone out as of uh, as of the recording of this podcast. So there's a couple of big fish still left on the on the pond. Dallas Keuchel being one of them. But here we go. We got Mike Trout signed a 12 year extension with the Angels for 430 million dollars. You got Bryce Harper signed a 12-year deal with the Phillies for $330 million. You got Manny Machado signed a 10-year deal with the Padres for $300 million. Nolan Arenado signed an 8-year extension with the Rockies for $260 million. Patrick Corbin, a lot of people forgot he did sign because he signed so long ago. He signed a 6-year deal with the Nationals worth $140 million. Yeah, Paul Goldschmidt signed a 5-year extension with the St. Louis Cardinals, my Cardinals, for $130 million. And this was an extension signed before he ever played an official game in their jersey. Uh, then you got Alex Bregman, six-year extension with the Astros for $100 million. And then you got Justin Verlander that signed a two-year extension with the Astros for $66 million. So the reason why I put Verlander's in here is because he actually became the highest AAV pitcher in baseball right now. So AAV is average annual value. So he's going to get paid $33 million a year in his two extension years, which gets him above of uh, Granke, Zach Granke right now. Granke's contract actually came down just a little bit to where he's only making $32.5 million this year to pitch, which that poor guy, I just don't know how he's going to eat. But for those eight players, for those of you mathletes out there, you already knew this, but that's $1.76 billion, billion with a B for eight players, right? They're over $1 billion just with Trout, Harper, and Machado. Now, all those guys are kind of generational players. I think Trout is on his way to potentially, and this is insane for such an old sport, he's on his way to potentially be the greatest baseball player we have ever seen in our entire lives. But but here's the other thing. Uh, I'm not really going to go into each one of those deals or which ones I think are going to be good or think are going to be bad. I'll just talk about a couple of them. The Mike Trout deal, um, he's he 100% deserves that money, right? Because he's been woefully underpaid. In the time he's been in Major League Baseball, his worth has been somewhere in the $300 million range, and he hasn't been paid anywhere near that, right? Not even a third of that. So this deal, I feel like it could have reasonably been higher than that, because the Angels are going to have him for the entirety of his career. Towards the end of his career, he's certainly not going to be performing like he's performing right now, in which people are like, oh, how's this contract going to look in the you know 10th year, 11th year? They're, they're being dumb. These are people that don't understand marketing. Mike Trout, as he's inching his way up to his 500th home run, his 600th home run, maybe even his 700th home run, his 3,000th hit, you know, whatever, uh, you know, his 2,000th RBI or whatever the thing might be. Every single one of those opportunities is is a chance for the Angels to sell tickets, to sell uh, caps, you know, commemorative baseballs and T-shirts and all these different things. And also, Mike Trout, if he ends up becoming the best player ever, but let's just say he's a top 10, like top 10 greatest player ever. The Los Angeles Angels don't have a whole lot of guys in Cooperstown. They certainly don't have any guys in Cooperstown that would be considered one of, you know, one of the few greatest players of all time. They're going to have that in Mike Trout now. He's not going to go into Cooperstown with someone else's hat. He's already a Hall of Famer right now, which is insane because he just came up to the major leagues in 2012. And so uh, for him, I thought it, the, the only thing about this deal is I'm sad for the game of baseball because of this deal because he is going to be the greatest player in any sport probably that no one's ever heard of. 
right? So uh, baseball is not America's favorite sport anymore. But the thing about it is, is this is some huge money for a guy that most people couldn't pick out of a lineup. If you put Mike Trout in a lineup uh, of people and just had just regular old Americans trying to pick him out of a lineup, you're not going to pick that guy out. But, I mean, if you put Russell Westbrook or LeBron James or Tom Brady or guys like that into a lineup, yeah, you're going to be able to pick him right out of the lineup, right? So this is the thing that's unfortunate is that he signed with the team that he signed with. The Angels are a horrific franchise. They have one championship in their almost 60-year history. Um, the Angels are exactly 0-3 since Mike Trout has been the greatest player in baseball, which is essentially the moment he got to the majors. So they have been to the playoffs exactly one time since 2012, and they got swept by the by the Royals in the ALCS or in the ALDS. Right? That was like you know they were supposed to destroy this team, and then you know they got swept. So the thing about it is, is People are like, well, can you tell the future? Are you going to be able to tell what the next 12 years are going to look like? Like, no, I, I don't know. But we have 60 years of history that tell us that this franchise has no idea how to win. And so it would have been really, really nice to see Mike Trout play for a huge market team, a, a team that contends, a team that knows what they're doing, a team that knows how to build a, a winner. Because right now they don't have a very good major league squad and they have a horrific farm system. Like those are things that take three or four seasons if you make a bunch of really good moves to fix, right? So I'll get off on the Mike Trout stuff, but a couple other things I'll talk about right here, just Bryce Harper and Manny Machado. Both of those deals are going to end up looking fine. I don't care about the, the the personality issues of Harper and Machado. I'm not terribly convinced that either of those guys are winners, like in the macro sense. I don't know that you can call those guys winners, but you're getting two of the best players literally of this generation in their, in their you know, they basically, they both turn 27, and you're getting them for the entirety of the rest of their careers, for the most part. So a lot of these deals I agree with. Um, some of them are are very friendly to the club. Most of them are very friendly to the player, but I'm, I'm down with all those uh, types of deals. So, all right, next question. Oh, it looks like the next question is actually tied to that one. So what are your predictions for the 2019 Major League Baseball season? So <clears throat> here's the deal. Uh, every year for like the last 10 years, I've had a group of guys where we will do preseason Major League Baseball predictions. And we actually predict everything. And for any of you guys out there right now, it's like, when's you going to be done talking about baseball? You're a bad American. You're a communist. And you can skip on to the later part of this podcast. We're talking about baseball. Guys, today, if you're listening to this on time, it's opening day. Season started. I got my hot dogs and I got my American flag wrapped around me. I'm probably going to sleep in it, y'all. So chill out. But anyway, the thing that we do is we we constantly look at what's going to happen that year and we pick everything. We pick the preseason. We pick what the postseason awards are going to be. We pick who's going to win the World Series. We do some bold predictions, all that. And we kind of give ourselves points for each one of those. And, and we get to predict them going further. And I, I've had kind of a, a dry run here for several years, not really doing good in my predictions. But I'm going to go ahead and give you all my predictions this year for Major League Baseball. So I'll try to go through these fairly quickly. But let's go ahead and start in the American League. So the divisional winners I've got in the AL East, I've got the Yankees. In the AL Central, I got the Indians. And in the AL West, I have the Astros. And my two wildcard teams are actually Boston and Tampa Bay. So, yes, I have three AL East teams sneaking in. Um, aside from the Minnesota Twins, there's not really another team out there. Like, I'm not really a believer that the uh, Athletics can do what they did last year again this year. And there's not really another American League team that I feel like is a, a trade or two away from getting in there. I mean, I feel like the easiest thing to predict is, is what's going to happen in the American League because you have four unbelievably elite teams and then Tampa Bay is also really really good 
So uh, if Minnesota was just a little bit better, and guys, if they sign Dallas Keuchel in the next like two days, I might sneak the the Minnesota Twins into that second wild card spot over Tampa Bay. But as of right now, I feel like Boston's going to kind of come back to the mean a little bit. I feel like the Yankees are going to get a, a game or two better. No one's going to really come close to the Indians in the Central and in the West. Uh, I got the Astros, and that's actually my pick for the pennant. So my AL pick is going to be the Astros. I feel like the Astros had a slightly down year last year. They had some guys like. Carlos Correa that had some very bad years that I think are going to bounce back. This is a team that's not, you know, shy about spending money. They're not shy about going and getting trades. So I feel like they're going to be the team to beat in the American League. For MVP, uh, for all these awards, we pick our top one and two guys. So I've got Mike Trout finishing first for the MVP, and I actually have Aaron Judge finishing second. So Aaron Judge kind of came back to earth a little bit from his rookie campaign last year. But I feel like, um, you know, there's always an East Coast bias to just about everything. I feel like Trout is just the odds-on pick to win it anyway, so you kind of are a little bit silly if you don't put him number one. But I feel like the Yankees are going to have a huge year. I feel like they're going to win more games than anybody in the regular season in the American League. And so that's why I'm going to put Aaron Judge in there, because I feel like uh, he's just a great, easy guy to vote for. And I think you got some people that are having a little bit of voter fatigue voting for Trout every year. So for the AL Cy Young, I got Chris Sale winning the Cy Young. That would actually be his first Cy Young, believe it or not. And then we got Kluber. So uh, Kluber is just about as consistent as you can get as a starting pitcher. And if Kluber were to win it, uh, this would be his third, I believe. So AL Rookie of the Year, I've got Vladimir Guerrero Jr. This is one of those guys, there's a lot of stuff surrounding him in terms of, well, are the the Jays going to keep him down for the first two weeks of the season so they can control him for an extra year. Here's the deal is he's hurt right now. He's got a little bit of a, of a groin injury or something like that, but the dude can absolutely rake and the Blue Jays are going to be terrible. So they need to sell tickets. So I think the guy's going to get a lot of at-bats. And then second, I have a guy named Kikuchi. He's a pitcher that's coming over from Japan to pitch for the Seattle Mariners. I think he'll get enough looks. I actually watched his first game and he looked pretty good. So that's uh, Those are my two picks for Rookie of the Year. For Manager of the Year, I've got Aaron Boone, and then I've got Cash for the Tampa Bay Rays. So I think, like I said, I think the uh, Yankees will win the most regular season games, which means Boone will probably uh, get in there on the Manager of the Year award. But if Tampa Bay ends up making it to the playoffs in the American League East, where you have the Yankees and the Red Sox, I think Cash, their manager, would uh, would get in there. And then lastly, in the American League, I've got the comeback players of the year. So these are the two guys I think are going to bounce back. Number one, I think Miguel Cabrera. Um, so Miguel Cabrera, I think he only played like 38 games last year. He had uh, an issue. I think he bicep tendon issue, if I, if I remember correctly. So even in his old age, he's one of the best pure hitters that we're going to see. So I think we're going to see a big bounce back year for him. And then Byron Buxton, he's been that guy that was like the, the top-touted prospect for forever, got to the major leagues early, but the dude just has not figured out a way to put it together. This offseason, he changed his workout regimen. He apparently put on like 20 pounds of muscle. He's looked good in the spring, so he's either going to be a colossal breakthrough or a colossal failure. So that's uh, my predictions for the American League. Now let's go on to the National League. So National League, here are my division winners. I've got the Nationals winning the NL East. I've got the Cubs winning the NL Central, and I've got the Dodgers winning the NL West. My two wildcard teams, I had St. Louis Cardinals. That would be their first time in the playoffs in three years. And then I've got the Philadelphia Phillies. So I know it's going to be a little bit of a non-sexy pick to go with the Nationals in the uh, National League East because of all the moves that the Phillies made. And believe me, I, I've, I thought the Phillies were really close to being a playoff team last year. And they've added, you know, obviously Bryce Harper, Real Muto. They've added um, some some good bullpen guys. They've got Gene Segura on the team now. So we'll see how they all kind of meld together. Um, but we'll, we'll just kind of have to figure that out. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you, the thing it took me the longest to pick was who 
was going to win the NL Central because I feel like the Cubs, the Cardinals, and the Brewers all could vie for that title. I don't really think the Reds and Pirates are, are there. But the Cubs are the Cubs. Um, and guys, as of recording this, it's about three days before the season starts, so the Cubs could even make a move in the next few days. I just don't really know. They're willing to go out and, and make some money. Chris Bryant didn't have, or go spend some money, rather. Chris Bryant didn't have a great year last year. I feel like he's a bounce-back candidate. Rizzo started really slow and came on late. You um, Darvish was an absolute travesty last year. He's had a healthy spring, so I just feel like the Cubs still have enough uh, to outpace the Cardinals, but I do feel like the Cardinals will be on their heels and make it into the postseason. Now, um, in terms of the National League pennant, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and go with the Nationals here. Um, The thing with the Nationals is they've got a good pitching staff, and if Steven Strasburg can somehow stay healthy, then the top three guys you're going to have to go against in in October is going to be Max Scherzer, you're going to have to go up against Patrick Corbin, and then you're going to have to go up against Steven Strasburg. Good luck winning a seven-game series with those guys. So they still got some questions, but we'll go ahead and go with the Nationals to win the pennant. For the MVP, I have Paul Goldschmidt finishing first, uh, the new arrival to the St. Louis Cardinals, and then I've got Bryce Harper finishing second. So obviously, if those two teams make the playoffs, well, you know when they haven't made the playoffs in a while, I think the two best players on their teams uh, will get a lot of votes, so that's why I got Goldschmidt and Harper. For the Cy Young, first I've got Max Scherzer winning again. Uh, I wanted to not pick Max Scherzer this year just because he's been doing this for so long and he's been dominant for so long I was like you know the other shoes got to drop at some point but I just don't think it's going to be this year <clears throat> and then second the the normal pick would be Jacob deGrom here because uh, he had such an amazingly year last year but I'm actually going to go with Aaron Nola for a similar reason I don't think the Mets are going to be in the playoff hunt and so if the Phillies actually make the playoffs and Nola is their ace I think he'll get some votes for the Cy Young for rookie of the year the first I have Robles that's the guy for the Nationals I think he's going to get a ton of playing time he'll be their starting center fielder and then Fernando Tatis Jr. so another junior will be in there but uh, getting in there for the Padres this is a guy that can create a lot of uh, havoc on the base paths but also at the plate so I think he's going to get some votes for manager of the year I have the Cardinals uh, Mike Schilt and then uh, Gabe Kapler for the uh, for the Phillies. So obviously you kind of see a trend here. I feel like if the Cardinals and the Phillies make it into the playoffs, you're going to see those two guys get in with manager of the year votes. And in terms of comeback player of the year, I think these are pretty easy. Number one would be Corey Seager out for the Dodgers. He pretty much missed, I think, the entirety of last season uh, with an injury. So him coming back, I just don't see a way where he doesn't bounce back strong. And then they've got you Darvish. So for you Darvish to come back and be the comeback player of the year, he pretty much just needs to exist and breathe oxygen. <laughs> That's pretty much all that guy needs to do in order to be a comeback player of the year pick for that. So in terms of my World Series prediction, for my World Series, I've got the Houston Astros winning the World Series, uh, and I got them winning in six games. So um, that is a team that is stacked. There's not something on that team that I look at and don't really like. Maybe catcher is that one place where it's like, ah, you know, and if they had traded for JT Real Mildo, uh, that would have you know, worked out quite a bit better, but they didn't get Real Mildo. He went to Philadelphia. But anyway, I still think they're probably the overall best team, even though they're probably not going to win more games than the Yankees will this year, but we will just see. Uh, in terms of the All-Star game, we do pick that as well. I'm going to go with the AL. I've picked the NL for I don't know how many years running, and they just keep disappointing me. But the overwhelming majority of the best players are in the American League right now. It kind of feels like for forever the best players in the NBA were in the West for like 20 years, and the East was just kind of a joke. Um, and I think that there's going to be a combined score of seven runs in that game. And then at the end, we do these three bold predictions. So here are my bold predictions real quick. Number one, I think Chris Davis will get designated for assignment. Uh, Number two, I think the AL Central will have two 100-loss teams. 
Obviously, I think those uh, teams are going to be the uh, Kansas City Royals and the Detroit Tigers. And lastly, Dexter Fowler will be benched by May. So Dexter Fowler is my least favorite of the St. Louis Cardinals, my least favorite guy on the team. He has been a disaster pretty much from the moment that he was signed by the Cardinals. I didn't feel good about the signing. I didn't feel good about how um, he tried to embrace the city. And his performance has been putrid, and he has looked like hot garbage pretty much all spring. And so I'm about ready for him to be out the door. I don't know what his trade value would be, but you can pretty much trade him to get him off your roster and get some other guys in there. But, yeah want that guy to be gone. So uh, I think that he will get benched by May. He'll get the, uh, the chance to start and then he will be done. So again, I know for some of you guys that aren't baseball people, that was like one of the most painful experiences of your life. But you know what? It is what it is. I hope for you baseball guys out there, you Americans, that you enjoyed it. So here we go. Next question. What book are you reading right now? So, uh, well, funny enough, uh, the book I'm reading right now is called Sex, Money, Murder. <laughs> so uh, here's the deal. I got a buddy named uh, Spike down in Lawton. Yes, I actually do have a buddy named Spike. Yeah, I, I have no idea how that happened. But anyway, uh, he doesn't send me book recommendations often. Maybe about twice or, uh, a year, he'll send me a book recommendation, and he sent me this one. And so... Um, The funny thing about this book is I go and buy it from a bookstore that's across the street from where I work. And uh, they had sent me a coupon to, to order a book. And so I, whenever I get a actual physical book, I try to make sure it's, you know, usually a fiction book, something that I'm probably not going to want to mark up or, or reread or reference later. And so I kind of flipped through the books that I was wanting to read uh, here in the, the, the very near future. And that was one that came up. I was like, oh, okay, well, this is kind of a true crime book. And so I don't think I'll be going back and, and making a bunch of highlights and referencing it. So I'll go ahead and take that on. But let me actually read a quick description of the book to you guys so you can kind of get a sense of what I've uh, currently dug into. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, the Bronx had one of the highest per capita murder rates in the country. The use of crack cocaine surged, replacing heroin as the high of choice. Drug dealers claimed territory through intimidation and murder, and families found themselves fractured by crime and incarceration. Chronicling the rise and fall of sex money murder, one of the most notorious gangs of its era, reporter Jonathan Green creates a visceral and devastating portrait of New York City borough and the dedicated detectives and prosecutors struggling to stop the tide of violence. The setting is Soundview, one of the city's most dangerous projects, where we encounter the gangsters Suge and Pipe and the charismatic leader of sex and the charismatic leader of sex money murder, Pistol Pete. We also meet the dedicated policemen like rookie housing cop Pete Forcelli and seasoned detective John O'Malley, risking their lives to make a difference. It's a world in which dealers get their hands dirty simply by counting the hundreds of thousands of dollars of cash they make on a monthly basis, watch Scarface while smoking spliffs between shootings, and coolly assassinate rivals during a neighborhood football game, and where nothing is more important than preserving your honor and expanding your domain with force. Breaking up the gang is a legal feat, but their murderous reputation and the expansion of their drug operation across state lines means that sex money murder draws the attention of the feds, the FBI and the Bureau of Alcohol and Firearms, and the preser- preserving federal prosecutors Liz Glazer and Nicole Labera, who will use RICO, the Racketeering Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act, to go after the drug crews. Drawing on years of research and extraordinary access to gang leaders, law enforcement, and federal prosecutors, Green delivers an epic, character-driven narrative and an engrossing work of gritty urban reportage. Magisterial in its scope, Sex Money Murder offers a unique perspective on the violence raging in modern-day America and the battle to end it. So, 
I like true crime stuff. I think it's really, really interesting. And the thing about it is I am always looking for stories of human depravity, right? That's kind of the deal is anytime you start thinking that the humans around you are, are great people, just know that we all have this in us. You know, we all have the capability as fallen, uh, fallen creatures, uh, you know, fallen humans, that this is something that we can end up doing. And there's a lot of hurt and there's a lot of uh, pain and blood already in this book. And I'm excited to get through the end of it. All right. Next question. Is yoga satanic? Um, so here's the thing with this question. There's been a lot of people that have done a lot of weighing in and a lot of discussion on this exact topic. Um, it's really a huge point of contention for so many Christians today because you have Christians that want to participate in yoga, but they don't feel like they can. And then you've got, you know, a few select pastors. I know Mark Driscoll's talked about this a lot that are like, no, it's absolutely pagan and it's, and it's satanic and it's all these different things. But, but here's the thing. You're talking to a guy that does yoga about once a week, maybe once or twice a week. Now, the way that I do yoga, I typically do it on the day that I'm recording this, which is a Monday, because I usually have a late night on Sundays. I usually work out twice on Sundays. And so by Monday morning, I'm ready for a little bit of a, you know, a relaxing stretch, kind of a recovery. And so I just go to YouTube and I just look for free yoga for men things. So it'll typically be 30 to 45 minutes, uh, a lot of stretching to kind of open up the hips, open up the low back, things like that. Basically, try to keep this, uh, this body running. Um, but here's the deal. Yoga does have its origins in Eastern religious practices, okay? So if you were doing yoga and you were combining it, this kind of feels like the question from earlier, like with the meditation, but if you combine it with an Eastern religious viewpoint, if you are doing these poses to clear your mind and connect to the earth and speak to the grand mother or whatever the new age nonsense vernacular you want to use, that's obviously a problem. That's obviously a problem. But where I feel like most of these Christians get it wrong, including pastors, is they're, they're trying to exegete the scriptures in an overwrought fashion where there are, you know, elements of a certain thing that are satanic. So like if you do it, you're automatically being satanic and sinful. Every time I do yoga, <clears throat> I'm doing it for stretching because a lot of the poses and a lot of the intra-abdominal pressure that it creates and a lot of the, the ways to hold this as opposed to doing that, it's good for you cardiovascularly, it's good for you strength-wise, and it's certainly good for your flexibility. That's why most people do yoga. Now, are there people that do it as, as, a, as a part of their Eastern New Age religion? 100%. Like, sometimes I laugh while I'm doing some of these videos on YouTube because these people are, they're just goofy. Ah, you know, just escape into your mind, man, and just let it be. All right, let's go ahead and do an upward dog and just take your chest to the universe as a, as a thank you to the universe for doing this thing, bro, dude, whatever. Like, it's absurd. It's ridiculous. But I do upward dog to stretch my stomach and my hip flexors, right? It's, it's Again, I feel like there's a lot of things to be alarmed about in culture. I don't feel like Christians doing yoga is one of them. I even saw this ridiculous thing online. I can't even remember the name of it, but it, it's the Christian alternative to yoga. And I looked at it. It's the same exact poses. It's like the same poses, but they're doing it for the glory of God. It's like, guys, you can just stretch, can't you? Like the, the reason why I stretch is because I want to take care of my body. Again, part of my physical resilience is making sure that my body can work for a long, long, long period of time, assuming I don't get attacked by wolves or hit by a bus or some sort of debilitating disease, right? That's how I'm glorifying God in my body. I'm glorifying God with my physicality. 
So someone's going to have to make a much, much better argument than the ones that I saw online to make me stop doing yoga. Because if I just bent over right now and, and did like a, you know, a hamstring stretch, is that somehow satanic because yogis stretch their hamstrings as well? It's like, dude, it's ridiculous. So here's the answer. It certainly can be satanic, but not in the way that most people do it. So if you want to do it to be flexible, do it to be flexible. All right. Next question. What would you have done differently if you had a life mulligan? Uh, you know what? I would have joined the military. So, um, I grew up in Lawton, Oklahoma. Uh, Fort Sill is an army base that is, uh, right there connected to Lawton. So I was around military people my entire life. My stepfather's military. Um, and obviously, uh, I've had a tremendous interest in the military all the way up to this point. You know, I, you want to get me to cry pretty easy. Show me a, a soldier coming home video. I can't even control myself. It's ridiculous. Um, but I would have joined the military if I could have still met my wife, right? That's always kind of the caveat. So if I could still have met Kelsey and still had, um, you know, been able to, to marry her and develop a relationship with her and been able to serve in the military, that's probably something I would have done. Uh, I don't know that I have the uh, the pool or underwater skills to have been a SEAL. Uh, it would have been interesting to train for that and, and try for that. But uh, the more I've learned about Green Berets and, uh, and Army Rangers, I feel like that would have probably been a good place for me to try and go and try and serve. Uh, but for the most part, I, I do think that's kind of a thing that's missing for me is, you know, I've done some things to contribute to society and, and obviously doing things like this podcast to try to contribute to your guys' lives. But for the most part, I, I don't feel like I've done anything that's that terribly dynamic and to serve the country in this way would have been pretty awesome. All right. Next question. Love thy neighbor, but if thy neighbor is a bad person, what do you do? i.e. they're immoral, doing illegal things, racists, pedophiles, etc. How are you supposed to love that person? Uh, so thanks for this question. I, I feel like it's kind of an easy one to answer though. Um, now, if someone's a pedophile, obviously justice is important. And if you know they're a pedophile and they're like, you know, trying to get the kids in the neighborhood, that's, that's probably something you need to, not probably, that is definitely something that you need to take, uh, take control of and figure out that situation, get the proper authorities involved, if not getting involved yourself. But I would say that just about everyone that is your neighbor is bad in in a pretty horrific way, but we just don't always see it. I mean, yeah, if I were to walk to my car in a KKK hood later and everybody saw it and, you know, I had a big swastika tattooed on my chest and all those things, that's pretty out, out there. That's, that's pretty, you know, hey, guys, I'm a racist. I'm, I'm an idiot. Like, everybody look at me. But most people don't just, like, plaster their stupid opinions and viewpoints on their foreheads. So I feel like this, I mean, it's John 13, 34, 35. For those of you that, you know, obviously know that scripture, this is Jesus's last moment to talk to his disciples. And this was kind of his lean in guys, get in here. Let's hear this advice. And it was a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So loving somebody, and we've talked about this before, but that's not the, the question that the guy asked. Loving people isn't just placating them and telling them that everything that they're doing is okay, right? Because there's a lot of things that people do that are not okay, right? So you're not loving someone that's had an abortion by saying, you know what? It's okay. You know, you just murdered that baby. You ripped it to pieces, but you know, God loves you anyway. Yeah. God loves you anyway, but you also have to call out the sin. That was a horrible thing. They murdered somebody. I, I, actually, technically they paid someone else to murder somebody, right? Which makes them complicit. But uh, that's kind of one of those things is you're going to have a lot of people in your life that have depravity in in their soul and their stupid things that they think. And, you know, it just kind of is what it is. Uh, we're called to love these people. We're called to, uh, you know, 
reveal the gospel to them and share the gospel to them with them, uh, but also to operate in this world full of grace and truth. So that's the way you would go about doing that. All right, next question. Well, then this question is actually from a kiddo of the listener, of the guy that asked the last question. So thank you, uh, Ryder. I appreciate you writing in. I think he's 11 years old. So here's the one question he had for me. If you could fix one problem in the world, what would it be? Mine would be to make sure that everybody had fresh drinking water. Okay, again, thank you very much. Uh, I'm glad that you're listening to the podcast. I hope you and your dad are getting a lot of value out of it. Um, the one problem that I would fix in the world, you know, you could take this question to some existential ends. You could go into be like, well, I would hope that no tear had ever been shed or, you know, whatever the thing might be. But practically, you know, if you could just snap your fingers and take care of something, I would just get rid of human trafficking. I mean, the, the statistics around it, I mean, you get a lot of uh, varying statistics, but I, I kind of got some off the International Labor Organization. Um, they estimate that there's around 40 million victims of human trafficking globally. Uh, so about 81% of those are trapped in forced labor. So more, normally people think of it as sex trafficking, which it certainly is that, but 81% is forced labor. Uh, 25% of those people are children, and uh, three-quarters of them are women and girls. And obviously there is the depravity of the sexual enslavement <clears throat> And selling of these these young people that are basically just raped, uh, do, you know, dozens of times every single day of their entire life until they finally die. Um, and so, the thing about it, it, it's one of the worst things uh, that you can imagine uh, for us as Westerners. We don't think about this as much, but you know, I think about it a lot being a resident of Oklahoma City because we're kind of a thoroughfare uh, for a lot of human trafficking. Because through Oklahoma City, we have a lot of interstate systems that connect through here. So we've got I thirty five, I forty four, and I forty. So pretty much a lot of the major highway systems in the United States basically run right through Oklahoma City. And so we've had a lot of police officers that have really, really struggled uh, with this issue in our city. Um, and it's kind of a hard thing to, to get on the other side of, because as soon as you catch one cell, there's three more that have popped up. So that would be the one thing I would take care of. And again, thank you so much for listening to this podcast, bud. All right. Next question. What is the best music album that you've heard recently? Okay, so this is going to be surprising to most of you guys, especially if you like the music that's on the intro or outro track of those podcasts or things like that, or if you've known me for any length of time. Here's the thing. I, in general, do not like country music, especially if it's played on the radio. It is some of the most god-awful, ignorant garbage that you could possibly imagine. But for whatever reason, I'm driving home uh, from work, I don't know, several months ago, and there is a local... um, casino that has big concerts from time to time. I think it was Riverwind. I, I can't remember exactly which one it was uh, out near Norman. But <clears throat> there was a an advertisement for a band called Midland. And it was these three guys on the ad and they were wearing these, you know, cowboy hats, but with the straight bills and they all had kind of long hair and mustaches. And I was like, all right. And I drove past these, uh, these billboards for, for weeks and never even thought to check out who that band was. But one day I kind of got a wild hair plug them into my Apple Music, and I just start playing one of the songs that had a star next to it. And they are about as twangy, basic country as it gets. They're they're not radio country, I can tell you that much. And for whatever reason, their music (laughs) speaks directly to my soul. I don't know what it is. Maybe something in my roots as an Okie, I don't know what the deal is, but uh, their album is called On the Rocks. As far as I know, it's the only album that they have. But I can listen to that thing straight through and just have a good old time. They've got some slower songs, kind of George Straitish type songs. They've got some more uh, let's dance type songs. But I don't get what it is. My wife 
absolutely hates it. She has no idea what happened. She hates country music maybe more than I do. So if you're a country music person, you should definitely listen to Midland. I think you'll enjoy it. But even if you're not, give it a go. I might be insane. I I reserve all the rights to just explain that I'm probably insane. But at at the end of the day, I'd give that one a go. All right. Next question. After World War II, Masons and Shriners, etc., were really popular organizations for men, fostering community and making a difference. Now they are dwindling and struggling with membership. Why do you think that is? Um, So, to, to be completely honest, I don't have a tremendous amount of knowledge about Masons and Shriners. I actually did a, um, a presentation on the Freemasons when I was in college, but it's not so in a, you know, a group that I ever kind of wanted to be a part of. It's kind of like, even in college, I, I the thought of a fraternity was just kind of silly to me. It's like, do you really need to pay for that? Like, why in the world would you do that? But I get, I get why people do it. It just wasn't really for me. Um, but I guess one of the first things, even if I were just to take a guess here is that men are more isolated than ever before, but most men don't feel the need to change that. I mean, I feel like that's pretty fair to say is we're so isolated, but most men are just like, eh, whatever. You know, I talk about male community literally all the time. And most of the guys listening to this podcast, statistically, I just know this to be true. You're not in male community. And and no, it doesn't mean you're not ever around males. I'm sure you're around males at church. I'm sure you're around males at work, but you're not in community with those guys. You just see them sort of often. You don't ever do anything with them. You don't ever accomplish. You just kind of, oh, how's work going? Hey, really busy. <laughs> like you just, that's all your life is with these dudes. You're not doing life with those guys. And, but here's the thing is, is for us as guys, we get plenty of this kind of faux control slash interaction from like gaming and social media. And so for some of us, we feel like we have this interaction because that's the things that you do know about the groups like the Masons and the Shriners and things like that. These guys were around each other all the time and, and they had some, they had interactions with each other, but they also had control over, um, you know, certain things that were happening in their community. They were really, really important members of that community, but we can do that now with video games and social media. You can literally play Call of Duty with a bunch of weirdos from all around the world, right? All at the same time. You're playing Fortnite and you're, you're kind of doing your thing and you're talking trash to a dude in Spanish. Like it's just, it's whatever you want to do. That That's kind of the interconnectivity of what we have right now. But the, the other thing I guess about these groups is because of some of the things that I just described, the, the utility and the power and the charity of groups like that, that you can basically accomplish that today without those groups. Because a lot of those groups that were that popular, you had to go to the local Masonic Lodge to kind of connect with some of those men. Now I can just follow you on Twitter, right? If you're that interesting to me, and I constantly want to hear your thoughts, I can just follow you on Twitter. Hey, hey, you're listening to a podcast right now. You can just listen to someone's podcast. Get their opinions on all kinds of nonsense. That's what we've been doing for the last 45 minutes, right? You're just listening to some random dude, some random voice in your phone, give you opinions about a bunch of crap that you didn't even really, you weren't even that interested in for the most part or whatever the thing might be. But you don't have to have those groups in order to get things accomplished now. I, and that's not to say that those groups are obsolete and they're not useful. Obviously, there's there's some utility left in them, but there's just not as much utility. Uh, and I guess that's just the thing is those groups just don't carry the same weight that they once did. I mean, everything is cyclical. I mean, I, I think back to uh, college and you think about student organizations on a college campus. And let's say you're a super involved, dedicated scholarship student. You're there for four years, whatever the situation might be. And you know, you're starting student organizations or you're making student organizations better. You know, this is a lot of the stuff that I did when I was in college, but you kind of look back and most of the stuff that you worked on, no one really remembers it. 
And some people are like, oh my gosh, then how are we going to leave a legacy? And what's that going to do to us? And all that, you know, whatever. But it's just like, look, every four or five years, it's a whole different crop of students that don't care about the stuff that you cared about 10 years ago. So of course, they're going to start their own organizations. Of course, they're going to start doing some of their own things. Some things will be the same, but you know, everything's cyclical. So maybe we'll have a time when the Masons and Shriners and things like it are are more popular. But as of right now, it's just not a big need for it. All right, guys, next question. Uh, would you ever do Would you ever do an Ironman triathlon? So this one's pretty easy. Never say never, but pretty much no chance of me doing an Ironman. Here, here's the thing, guys. The, if you're an Ironman triathlete out there, you have my utmost respect. You are a gangster. Like, that is insane. But here's the thing, is the toll that training for something like that takes on your body, the toll of actually doing something like that and what that does to your body, um, and the just the amount of time, like I, the guys that I know that do Ironman, it's just like, okay, you're definitely not crushing it at work and at home and with your kids and training for a triathlon and sleeping. Like it's not possible unless you are a professional Ironman person. Like unless you're a, tr- a professional triathlete, something's got to give. And for most of these guys, it's not their training. Because if you show up to an Ironman and you haven't trained properly, you literally might die. So it's just kind of one of those deals is you see these guys, their marriages suffer, um, you know, their relationship with their kids suffer. They're not going to ball games. They're out on the bike or doing their thing. There's nothing about that that appeals to me. Like I would rather train jujitsu, lift weights, run sprints, get things done in a very, you know, uh, contracted period of time. I just, I just don't really see me being an Ironman triathlete. But again, I'm saying that here at the age of 33, something might change. I might grow wild hair later, but I, I do not see it as being very likely. All right. Next question. How much sleep do you average per night? So, uh, I get about seven hours of sleep, right? So I know you should get somewhere between seven and nine, but I just got to tell you, since I listened to that Joe Rogan episode with Matthew Walker, uh, I can't remember the exact uh, number of the episode. I'll find the link and I'll put it in the show notes, but he did a, like a two hour long episode with this guy named Matthew Walker. And he was literally, and I've talked about on this podcast a lot before. It was just, he's a sleep scientist. He's a sleep expert. And he was talking about all this mind blowing things that happen to you when you're underslept or under recovered or, or all the things like that. And man, like it was just like, holy crap. And Joe Rogan was having his mind just blown constantly in that podcast podcast. But if I get less than seven hours of sleep, it's just like, not only do I wake up tired the next day, but I'm like, ah, I wonder how many hours off the end of my life I just lost. It's just kind of one of those deals. So for me, I I find sleep to be very important. I'm not a napper. I know some of you guys can just go out to your car and take a nap. Uh, I just, it takes me 15, 20 minutes to fall asleep. And so if I'm trying to take a 15 or 20 minute nap, you know, it's taken me twice the amount of time just to fall asleep. So I do try to average about seven hours per night. Um, on the weekends, I usually try to sleep a little bit longer, maybe eight or nine hours. Uh, I know that doesn't uh, give kind of a one or one-to-one correlation in terms of catching up on your sleep. The Matthew Walker guy talks about that in the podcast, but anyway, I'll, I'll leave that right there. But again, I'll give you that in the show notes. All right. A couple questions left. Number, uh, okay. What have we got here? All right, here we go. Next question. If I have a goal to lead 52 people to Christ a year, would God be happy with my goal? Uh, So that's an interesting question. So obviously that's leading one person to Christ every week. Um, I can't imagine that God would be disappointed in that goal, but here I am. I'm I'm just kind of a dumb human that uses 11 or 12% of my brain to to operate. So I have no idea what God's thinking. Uh, I can't imagine him thinking that's a bad idea, but I, I think there's probably some nuance to that question, which would 
you know, maybe lend itself to what if he's granted you with the gift of speaking and exhorting the Bible and exegesis, and he's given you a lot of uh, skill sets to where maybe he's he could potentially bless you with an audience that, you know, through the Holy Spirit could, could get you 52 people a week that would give themselves uh, over to Christ, right? Um, but, and maybe you're a different person. Maybe you're more of a, a background type person. He's given you a lot of skill sets that kind of help you assist other people in their ministries or whatever. So maybe 52 people a year that you directly lead to Christ, maybe wouldn't be the best idea. I mean, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to think through this, but th- that's a highly nuanced question. But again, I would say for the most of us, um, we're not leading anybody to Christ. Like maybe you've never led anyone to Christ. Maybe you've never shared the gospel with anybody. You've never shared your testimony with anybody. So it's going to be hard for you to have any type of a goal in mind. So I think that the fact that this was even worded within, with a kind of goal orientation, I thought that was pretty cool. So uh, yeah, there's my answer to that. So let's go ahead and go on to the last question here. What is the best gift that you've received that was under $100? And what is the best gift that you would give to someone else that was under $100? Okay. Um, so I guess both answers are whiskey related. So surprise, surprise to those of you that know me. Well, a couple of years ago on my birthday, I received uh, two bottles from two different people of Johnny Walker green label. And so both those are, I don't know, that's like a 70, 65, $70 bottle of whiskey. So I got two of those. And so that was two under the $100 thing. But uh, Johnny Walker is a, it's a pretty good whiskey. It is a, um, it's a blended scotch and the green label is one of my favorite ones. So I know a lot of people, you know, they go crazy for the blue, but that's like $250 for a 750 milliliter. And it's, I mean, it's got a good nose on it, but it's just, it's not that great. It's, it's good, but it's just, it's certainly not worth the price tag. And I've had, you know, I pretty much have had everything on the Johnny Walker from the from the red label to the black label, double black, platinum gold. I've, I've kind of had it all, but green, I think, is really, really solid. And so for those of you out there that are looking for a good blended whiskey, that's a pretty solid one. But I just thought it was interesting that I got the same bottle of whiskey from two different people that didn't know each other on the same day. So that was pretty solid. Um, in terms of what I would gift to somebody probably the best whiskey that I've had that is under a hundred dollars. And I, and I'm talking about what you can actually get it for. Cause I've had some whiskey that's under a hundred dollars that you'll never see at retail prices. Right. But one that is readily available. So to all my whiskey people out there, it is Ardbeg Ugadol. Okay. So Ardbeg, A-R-B-E-G, Ugadol, U-I-G-E-A-D-A-I-L. Ardbeg Ugadol. So that is an Isla Scotch. It is incredibly peaty, incredibly smoky. So if that's not your thing, you will not enjoy this. But this is Ardbeg that was aged in sherry casks. And so sherry cask finished whiskeys or aged whiskeys are some of my favorites. That's just something that really fits with my flavor profile and my palate. But Ardbeg Ugadol might be the best bottle of whiskey under hundred bucks. And it's so readily available because you have Ardbeg 10, Ardbeg Anoa, Ardbeg Koryavekin, and Ardbeg Ugadol. Those are the four Ardbegs that you can pretty much find on the shelf at any decent liquor store in your town. So um, if I were going to give someone a gift and I I knew that they had a uh, kind of expansive whiskey palette. That's how, what I would go ahead and do. So guys, thanks again for the questions. Uh, y'all did a great job this time. So as always, if you have questions for me, you can leave them on social media. 
If you've got my phone number, just text me or just shoot me an email. It's info at undaunted.life, info at undaunted.life. So sometimes I get questions and those questions will actually turn into an entire episode of the podcast. And other times I get questions and I was like, well, I think there's going to be a lot of people that would enjoy hearing my answer to that. So we'll go ahead and put it in the next Q&A episode. So the next Q&A volume nine probably won't be as long as it was between volume seven and eight. But again, you just keep sending the questions our way and we'll keep putting the content out. All right, guys, before we let you go, we're going to do a quick resilience boost. As you know, by now we are a men's ministry and our mission is cultivating manly resilience. Specifically, we do that by providing content like this podcast that helps guys forge spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. So for you guys, today. Uh, Obviously, I promised I would leave you that Matthew Walker, Joe Rogan experience episode. So I found that and something completely different that we haven't talked about at all today is a documentary recommendation. So it's called The Dawn Wall. So everybody right now is talking about the documentary called Free Solo, about the guy that Free Solo climbed El Capitan out in California. And that is fantastic. And I'm, I'm kind of not wanting to talk about it a lot because I may do a, a full episode on on that uh, documentary later. But The Don Wall uh, was a documentary that came out a couple of years ago. I, I know it's on Netflix and I'm, I'm going to leave the link to the website here. But it was an incredible story of these two guys that were attempting to climb an area of El Capitan that has never been climbed before, and it's called the Don Wall. It's called the Don Wall because when the uh, sun rises in Yosemite National Park, the first part of El Capitan that is lit up by the sun is this wall. It's called the Don Wall. If you look at it, you look at pictures of it, you're like, "Some you can't climb this. Like It's just basically a sheet of rock. Which it is, but it kind of goes through the story of these two guys that are attempting to climb this thing. And, you know, we don't really know if it's possible. We don't really know. And it, it didn't really make a whole lot of waves in my world uh, when it, whether or not these guys actually made it up. But it's a tremendous story of brotherhood, of struggle, of uh, personal resilience. So no matter what you're into, and I don't care if you're into climbing or not, this is a, a story of human will and determination and creativity and all that. So I would definitely suggest that to you guys. So if you haven't watched that, um, it's decently family friendly. I think there might be some language in there, uh, a few F-bombs as they're climbing or something like that. But, you know, obviously uh, read up on the parents guides if you need to. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play and refer your friends to listen. And make sure you share this on social media. If you use the hashtag on Daunted Life, we'll be sure to find your post and give it a thumbs up. Guys, if we deserve a five-star review, please leave us one. That's how this podcast is going to continue to grow and reach more dudes. We're currently booking speaking engagements for the rest of 2019. So if you want me to come speak on your podcast, come speak at your men's event, at your church, at your school, whatever, hit me up, info at undaunted.life. Again, info at undaunted.life. Our website is www.undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at undauntedlife or facebook.com backslash undauntedlife. Check out our free devotionals on the YouVersion Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under plans. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music library for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is their song King of Sorrow, which is off their latest record entitled Phantom Anthem. The links to all of this are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>